I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Sarah McCraw Crow is the author of the novel, The Wrong Kind of Woman. She is a longtime magazine writer, editor, and book reviewer, and her articles, essays, and reviews have run in Book Page, The Christian Science Monitor, Prime Number, Family Circle, Ladies Home Journal, Parents, Parenting, American Baby, Baby Talk, and Working Mother, among others. Her short fiction has won prizes from So to Speak and Good Housekeeping, and her stories have been honored as contest finalists. As a child, Sarah lived in Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and Texas. She did most of her growing up in Virginia. For the past 20 years, she is called New Hampshire home. She lives with her husband and three almost grown children on an old farm where she gardens in the summer and snowshoes in the winter if there's snow. And although she's a transplanted Southerner, she has come to realize that temperamentally, she's a Northern New Englander. She's a graduate of Dartmouth College, Stanford University, and Vermont College of Fine Arts. And she's a member of Grub Street, Boston, and the National Book Critics Circle. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Sarah, how did you discover your inner writer? Oh, my inner writer. Well, you know, I think my inner writer was probably always there because I was one of those kids that was always writing and drawing and whatnot. And my whole career has been writing, too. So basically, since I went to journalism school after college and then worked in magazines, first as an editor and then as a freelance writer for many years. But my real fiction inner writer didn't come out till I was almost 40, I would say. And I am not really sure why I didn't have the courage to start putting my stuff out there and taking classes, but it just took me a long time to start doing that. And so... I don't really know when or why that happened at that age. Maybe it's just you get a little older, kids are getting older, don't care as much what people think. And yeah. Are there books or movies or experiences that you looked at during that time where you went, oh, maybe I could do this? Yeah, that's such a good question. And they probably were short stories, not novels, because I think I was so daunted by the idea of a novel, of trying to hold a story that's that big and even understand like, what is a novel? A novel can be lots of different things, but it's a big project. And so I think I was reading a lot of short stories in my thirties and into my early forties. And that felt like something that I could try. And sometimes a short story is you're just thinking about a character and that character is either at some kind of a turning point or encounter some kind of trouble or change. And that I felt like I could kind of grasp. And so I think I was just trying to maybe emulate other short story writers. I did get some short stories published, but I don't know if I ever really, I mean, I said that I didn't know what a novel was, but I'm not sure I know what a short story is. And now I know what a novel is. So Maybe it all worked out. I was just the opposite. I'm daunted by the idea of writing a short story. And I've (laughs) I've tried. And when I have sat down to do it, I just feel so disconnected from it. Like there's just so much story and how do you boil it down? And yet I think great writers know how to write a short story because you can boil down what's most important to that story. And so um, hats off to you for being able to do that. Thank you. I'm still afraid. (laughs) 
maybe I'll try again. I don't know. It's probably good for us to practice other, you know, practice what we're afraid of. Absolutely. Tell us about your novel, The Wrong Kind of Woman. So The Wrong Kind of Woman is a campus novel of sorts because it's set on and near the campus of Clarendon College in 1970 and 1971. And Clarendon College is the fictionalized version of Dartmouth College before co-education. So that was when Dartmouth was all male and a lot like Animal House. In fact, that's where Animal House, the movie and book came from to begin with. So it's about three people who are all grieving the same person. And that person is Oliver, who was a history professor at this college. And he dies very suddenly in his early 40s and too soon. His widow, Virginia, is sort of left to pick up the pieces and she's muddling along and she's someone who feels like a failure as a mom and as a wife and as an academic. And she is just not doing very well. And she's helped out by four women that her husband really did not like. And those are the four women faculty at Clarendon. And the male faculty have given them a derogatory nickname, the Gang of Four. So Virginia kind of resists their overtures for a while, but she slowly becomes friends with them. And then together, they start to bring some change to the campus. And then all hell kind of breaks loose after that. And then there are two other point of view characters. And one is Virginia's daughter, Rebecca, who's about to turn 14. And she is just adrift and really missing her dad. And no one wants to go back to 13. That's such a hard age. But she's right in that you know, losing her best friend and, you know, just trying to hold it together. And then Sam is a college student at Clarendon and he's musically talented and mathematically talented, but he just doesn't fit in at Clarendon because it's a very jockey, fratty kind of place. And both Rebecca and Sam are going to blunder into their own kinds of dangers that will kind of change them forever. But for all the characters, for these three main characters and everyone else in this novel, there's the background pressure of the Vietnam War and all the stuff Mm. that goes along with that. So the draft and the anti-war movement and student strikes and protests and more radical activism like the Weather Underground. So all of that stuff has felt very far away from this little town and campus until recently. And that's starting to exert pressure on the characters as well. It sounds like it's made to be a movie or a miniseries. (laughs) Writing from multiple points of view for also different ages. How did you approach that? I wish I could say it was orderly and as if I had a plan, but it was very organic (laughs) and honestly pretty messy. And when I started writing these pages, I was really only writing about Virginia and Oliver. And in my original, like early, early pages, it was the two of them, kind of like a marriage in the middle of things, a kind of maybe good enough marriage. And so I was kind of looking at them and their backstories. And it was just those two. And then at a certain point, I realized, oh, nothing's going to happen with Virginia if I don't get rid of Oliver. So I started thinking about that. And then Sam just popped up. I don't know if you've had that experience when a character sort of just appears to you. Oh, yeah. He was just there one day. And I didn't have all the details, but I just started coming out. And pretty much the same with Rebecca. She just sort of appeared in a certain form. And I, you know, we just keep going. And sometimes I could use that as a bit of an exercise where you're looking at a scene from one character's perspective, and then you can turn it around and see it from someone else's perspective. Mm -hmm. And then you might think, oh, I'll just 
stay with this other perspective and keep going. It was actually fun to do it that way, but it was a little bit messy and disorderly. How do you disconnect from, you know, the daughter who obviously is going to make some decisions that are dissimilar from her mother's and the son? That's a really good question. And I don't know that I have a good answer. I will say that I had no trouble accessing my inner 13-year-old, my sort of (laughs) sad, lonely, angry, all of the things that you are when you're just starting adolescence. And so that came pretty easily. And it was like a little closer to the age that I was in this time frame. You know, in reality, I would have been four or five in 1970. So I don't really have clear memories of that time. I could kind of figure out how someone her age would be moving around in the world in that particular world Mm -hmm. with her emotions. And that was pretty easy to access. And then Sam as a 20 year old, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. And I honestly don't know if I got it right since I never was a 20 year old man and I never will be, (laughs) but it was fun. I really enjoyed writing his pages and I would have written more honestly of his pages. So yeah, you never know what's going to stick. Like, so there's a secondary character in the story. She becomes sort of a love interest for Sam and her name is Elodie and she's kind of charismatic. She's an activist. And I wrote a lot of pages in her perspective, thinking she might be a more natural point of view character. And I never could quite figure out, is she for real? What is her deal? And because she never came clear to me, I just let her be more of a background character. So the reader never sees inside her head. I think you'd never know when you start. And I think too, even the pages that get cut, you know, by taking that dive into those characters' thoughts and they're never really wasted. You know those characters so much better now. You can speak on behalf of them so much better and more authentically than I think we could if we just said, you know, did it on one pass. The difference between two-dimensional characters and the ones that we really believe. You know, the book's called The Wrong Kind of Woman. It might be better to have two women point of view characters and no child, no young man. Yeah. There's so many things about writing that are just a little bit beyond our control. I think there's some stuff mm-hmm. you can control and you, you really can, you know, map it out. I mean, I'm not a good plotter. I've, I've tried and I've tried the outlines and all of that, but there is stuff you can, you can definitely map out. And there's other stuff you just, you just can't. It may be for some writers they can, but for me at this stage, I feel like there's some things I can do and some things I can't do. But what you said about all those scenes that, you know, you write and that's not working and you and you cut it, you're right. Nothing's wasted because in each of those mm-hmm. things, you learn something about your story world or another character, or it might suggest another scene. I mean, whatever you do, it's never wasted. It's always fun to get to know these pretend people, isn't it? Oh, it totally is. <laughs> and all the discovery, like the, all the things that you were going to discover about that character. It's yeah, mm-hmm. it's great. Mm-hmm. I have to ask, what is the wrong kind of woman? <laughs> so there's no such thing as the wrong kind of man. That's not a phrase. That's not a thing. Mm-hmm. But there is the wrong kind of woman. And it's sort of, I think it's kind of something we all feel from time to time. Like whatever your background, it's might be you know, these women are doing it right. They're doing the mom thing better, or they're doing the socializing better or career better. Back in the day, when you think of the wrong kind of woman, that's either somebody who was a rabble rouser or not nice or something like that. But, but I think that's like a kind of thing that we put on ourselves feeling somewhat wrong, kind of a lot of the time. And maybe it comes from the culture 
maybe we are just doing it to ourselves, but I do think it's sort of telling that you wouldn't have a title, the wrong kind of man. It just, Mm -mm. it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. So it's also supposed to be a little bit of a throwback, you know, a little bit of Mm a 1950s understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. Women have a place. Yes, exactly. If you're not in your place, you're the wrong kind of woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So writing this, especially in, and and now you're coming out with the paperbacks coming out soon. That's right. You've already published this in hardback. As this paperback's coming out with all that's going on in the world, I think this is even more timely because we're having discussions that these, I mean, I'm close to your age and I thought these discussions were over. Like I thought we all just said this, you know, women were going to be respected, even though we know the reality of it. We know that doesn't always happen, but that, you know, for conversation's sake, we all agree that, you know, these things are settled and man, I didn't think we were going to be having conversations. And been so striking. And really since I started writing this, which is probably in like 2016 or something, 2017, you know, when the Me Too movement was getting started. Mm -hmm. And especially right now, I continue to be a little bit stunned by where we are with things in our culture Mm -hmm. and in the news. And I wonder, what do my characters think? Because they were working so hard just to make a little bit of change. Late 60s and early 70s, there was so much that women didn't have access to, you know, they couldn't play mm-hmm. sports in college or high school. They couldn't get a credit card in their own name. If they were married, <laughs> couldn't get a mortgage in their own name. I mean, there's, it's just like basic, basic stuff, leaving aside all the cultural wars. It just was like basic fairness. And mm-hmm. so I have been wondering about that a lot. Cause I do feel like my book is, is sadly pretty timely right now. Mm-hmm. Who would have guessed that? two years ago. How did you go about your research? I went about it in a kind of phased way. Well, I should back up and say, before I did this novel, I worked on a historical novel about the sister Mm -hmm. of the artist, John Singer Sargent. So that was like mostly set in the early 20th century and a little bit in the late 19th century. And that was like, I did six months of research before I even started. And that book never got published, but it got me an agent. I really enjoyed writing it and I know why it didn't sell. But while I was querying and all that stuff, I started writing and I really loved the early seventies. And I just sort of landed on that time period. I mean, partly because I'm very curious about our parents' generation and what their lives were like when they were young. And partly I just was very curious about that period. And so I thought, I know all about the seventies. I don't need to do any research. I'm just going to start writing. And so I did. And it became clear very quickly how little I knew and how little I had no context. I knew like Sesame street and that was about all. I read a lot of New York times and Washington post articles from that time. Mm -hmm. I read a bunch of memoirs from women who were either activists or radicals, like weather underground people, because those women, a lot of times started on that same trajectory. They just were in college and all of a sudden they got derailed and went off in a totally different direction. I read a couple of memoirs of like college presidents' wives, just to kind of get the feeling of what it felt like for them. And then as I went further along, I did, I guess, more historical research. There've been a couple of books about why and how it was so hard for like the Ivy League schools to go co-ed, why they resisted mm-hmm. for so long. It's kind of fascinating in a really kind of horrible way that they were just determined to stay all male. I mean, was it all, was it a boys club? What was? It was definitely a boys club. And I think there was just the idea of it has always been this way. We don't want to change. 
and women have their own places. They can go to colleges, uh, Seven Sisters Colleges or land-grant colleges. That's good enough. And I think it also was probably a fundraising thing that they were scared of the alums, you know, mm. not giving money if things changed too much. Wow. So, so that was very fascinating too. And all that stuff was just like way in the background. That was, mm-hmm. you know, and then for other kind of, I don't know, textural research, I guess mm-hmm. it was more of, you know, compiling a lot of playlists and looking at old magazines and just trying to get that feeling of like, oh, and what was on TV, you know, in 1970, those kind of little details. When you go back and look at those magazine ads from the seventies, <laughs> they're terrible. And, you think about it, and at that time, advertising was just this huge business. And, you you know, there were people standing around a table deciding, you know, how to place things. And there was no Photoshop. There wasn't right. Adobe. It comes across so contrived and yes. so sexist. So, sexist. so much of it. That you look and go, gosh, was there like a woman in the corner of the room going, oh, this is so bad. Or at the time, were those women just kind of like, oh, this is just how it is. I know. I've wondered that too, because yeah, the ads are crazy. I mean, they are so sexist Mm -hmm. and they're so blatant. And (laughs) I don't know, maybe if you were a woman copywriter at that time, you knew you had to get people's attention and Mm -hmm. that's what got people's attention. Now you're publishing it in paperback. And so this has been out for a little while. What have you learned about publishing and being an author that maybe... Well, first I should say, I published this in like 2020 and that was like the height of the pandemic. So a lot of stuff... I just don't know about. I've only had one in-person event and everything else has been Zoom events and podcasts and things like that. And I mean, Zoom is wonderful because here we are talking to each other, but it's not the same as a bookstore in-person event. So so my experience is a little bit different and weird, I guess, because of the pandemic. Two things that surprised me are one is, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, but when you publish a book, And in the time leading up to it, you start making connections with other authors. And that has been such a wonderful side effect to have these sort of virtual friendships and see what other people are doing and how they're doing it and what they're writing and getting to read their books. And that has been just such a lovely surprise and to feel like I have all these new friends and acquaintances. It's really great. I had the same experience. You think you're going into this blind in a forest and then people are taking your hand and saying, here, let me help you with this. Hey, yeah. come on over here. You know, and you just, it's like, wow, other industries need to learn from watching the writing community. It's so true. And I mean, I knew that about writers generally, just from going to conferences mm-hmm. and things like that beforehand, but that's right. true. There were a couple of authors who had reached out and they just said, you know, here's what someone told me, little snippets of wisdom. And I can't even think what they are now, but it was just so <laughs> warm and friendly. And I mean, I hope I can do that for other people too. I saw that you have some live events coming up, correct? I do. Um, So that's, yeah, I know. Fingers crossed. I will have, I think three or four bookstore events coming up. So a couple in New Hampshire, a couple in Virginia. So that's very exciting. And it's, it's a little bit of a chance to redo, I guess. We were in full on COVID when I published my first one, the second one, Omicron started to rear its head and we thought we were coming out of it. And it's like, yep, nope, we're going back to the masking, going back to Zoom. But you know what? Thank God for Zoom. Yeah. And one thing that's nice, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, is if you do have a bookstore event or some kind of pub day event, it's probably going to be a conversation like this. And that's Mm -hmm. arguably more interesting when you have two people talking to each other than one just giving a little talk. 
which yeah. you know, sometimes traditional bookstore events can be a little dry. You know, here I'm going to read a few pages and then anybody have any questions and then crickets. So I think it's more interesting for the readers. Describe your writing day. Well, everything's a little crazy now because we have a puppy and I, we're still, <laughs> he's almost six months old, but we're still kind of adjusting. But okay, what kind of puppy? He's a Bernese mountain dog and his name is Frankie. Oh, cool. So he's good. He's going to be good, but he's, he's very much a puppy. He's going to be good. (laughs) Ordinarily, my writing day would begin really early in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I get my coffee and I either go to the kitchen table or just go back to bed, either with my Mm -hmm. notebook or a laptop. So like if I'm starting something or if I'm feeling stuck, I write in a notebook with, you know, pen and notebook. And there's something about that. That's kind of, I don't know, it feels less pressured or something. And I just Mm -hmm. can just write. And there's something about the computer that feels more real. So, or not real, but it's just, it sometimes can slow me down a little bit. So I do that first thing in the morning for a couple of hours. And after that, I start to run out of gas a little bit. I'm not one of those people who can write for five hours or, you know, a full day. And then I have my other work, which is mostly these days, my freelance work is mostly book reviewing. So I'm either mm-hmm. reading a book for a book review or starting to write the book review. And I do that in the afternoons usually. I don't know if you did this, but when my kids were younger and I was just starting to write fiction, I only had little pockets of time to try to write some fiction and I would do it whenever and wherever. So like at hockey practice or piano lessons or wherever, I would just like pull out the laptop and start writing or the notebook. And I think that is a really good skill to have. And I've sort of lost it. And I would like to go back to that, you know, ability to just whip out my notebook and write anywhere. I tried to write when my kids were young, like little, Mm -hmm. and it did not go well. And (laughs) I would write, yeah, like a hundred pages and think this is going nowhere. And I would stop writing and I would try something else. And it wasn't until kids were grown that I said, okay, now I'm going to write for me. Now I'm going to do my stuff. And so one day I had to go to get your car tags. And mm-hmm. I, I knew I was going to be there for hours and anything like that. I bring my laptop with. and it's amazing what I can get done in those little pockets of time. I think it's just like, it takes me out of being frustrated that I can't take care of business right away. So at least I feel like, okay, I've got this. And there's times when I'm home and I sit there for two hours and stare at the computer and go, yeah, no, everything I wrote just was terrible. And it was like two paragraphs. So that's I know. Not good. So. <laughs> well, it's, it's important for us to share that with each other and with mm-hmm people who are thinking about writing that some days it just doesn't go very well. And it's not because, oh, you're doomed. You're a bad writer. You're never going to write anything again. It's just like you had kind of a bad morning or a bad day and you just have to come back to it and it will be there. It always does come back. In some days, whatever's going on in your life feels bigger than your writing. And you, you can't think about pretend people when whatever nightmare is happening, you know, in your house or you know, in the, the world. world or whatever. And then a couple of days later, you go back to it. And I've found like problems I had with that manuscript. Now, like it clicks. I'm always afraid to get away from my manuscript. I don't want to lose touch. I don't want to forget something that's important. But I think both things are true. I think it's good to strive to write every day. And then when you need to take time off, not to beat yourself up about it. And, and then you might get a nice surprise like you did. Like the little break was actually yeah. just what you needed. You read lately that you've really enjoyed. <sighs> okay. You know what I read recently that I thought was really great was Emma Straub's new novel. Mm-hmm. Did not want it to end. It was so sweet. It was just just the right mix of bittersweet mm-hmm. and but also fun and nostalgia, that 90s nostalgia mm-hmm. and you know, New York City. 
before mm-hmm. it became the way it is today, you know, so corporate and everything. I just love, I love the back and forth. I love the, her, you know, trying on new identities each time she goes mm-hmm. back in time. Yeah. I, I loved it too. And then this one, this one came out pretty recently. It's called The Shore by Katie oh, Wendy. I saw that. Yeah. It's a debut novel and it's about a family going through a really hard summer because the dad of the family is dying from glioblastoma. It's not wow. a spoiler. I mean, you know that from the very start, but, yeah. it, but it rotates through the two daughters' perspectives and the mom's perspectives. And there's a lot of stuff they're not telling each other and they're kind of going through the motions and it's just a very close observation of a family and it's set on the Jersey shore. So it's just really good setting, great evocation of the beach yeah. and stuff. It's got a great cover. Asbury Park, like the um, Ferris wheel. Yeah, the Ferris wheel and the boardwalk and yeah. stuff. I'm curious about the cover though. I mean, I'm, I, I love looking at covers because this sort of looks like fun. <laughs> There's a lot of humor in the book, but it's, it's not a beach read in that way. I used to only read in my genre. And I found that when I started reading outside of my genre, I think it made my writing better. It made me think differently about writing. I remember reading a V.E. Schwab book made me think differently about the way I describe things. And so it's- Yeah, that's so true. And yeah, to read like a little bit of, well, V.E. Schwab, I guess it's not exactly fantasy, but more on that end of the spectrum Mm -hmm. or to read something that's like very literary. Or I was listening recently to Middlemarch, George Eliot, Mm because I had never read it. And Mm -hmm. it's like, she's so funny. I think it's good to read outside your genre. Mm -hmm. It makes our writing more interesting too. It's like you were saying how those characters pop in to your head while you're writing and we don't know where it comes from. I think so much of that, your brain takes it in and you never know when part of that's going to manifest on the page. So true. What was the most fun thing about writing that book? I love spending time in the 70s. I have a lot of 70s nostalgia, even though my teenhood was more like early 80s, but I just love that time period. And so that was really fun getting to hang out in that time period in my head for a couple of years. That was a very rich time for change. I mean, stuff was happening. Mm -hmm. All the changes of the 60s really kind of came into play in the early 70s. So, you know, the women's movement and, you know, the environmental movement and so many things grew out of the civil rights movement, but it really, you really saw it in the seventies, but there was lots of not great stuff too. So that was really fun and enlightening to do that. You know, writing wise, I love when you're, and this is not particular to this project, but it happens fairly frequently when you're kind of stuck on something and you think I I can't solve this problem or this character is whatever, or this plot point's not working. And, you know, you go take a shower, go take a walk. And then it's there. The answer has come to you and you sit down to write and it's like, oh, maybe this will work after all. And so I think that's my aim for any project I get to this one and hopefully the next ones that I will be able to work through. There are going to be those problem times when you're not sure about a character or a plot point or whatever, but your brain will work on it when you're doing something else and that will come back around and offer you some suggestions. Just this week, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm writing this manuscript and I had like 30,000 words written and decided to change the point of view. I thought, I can't do this. I can't, I can't do this. Can I write a book? <laughs> then I went, wait a minute. You have published two books, turned in a third book. So yeah, you can write a book. <laughs> it happens even when you published a book. You're still jumping into the water going, can I swim? Totally. And then there's like other stuff on top of that, which is like a little bit of imposter syndrome or, mm-hmm. you know, who am I to tell this story? I think that stuff is always kind of 
you know, intruding into our process. And Mm -hmm. yeah, even for people who've written lots of books, I think that still happens. What's the great advice you have for other debut authors? More for aspiring writers, kind of related to what you were just talking about, which is just give yourself permission. Like whatever stage you're at, if you're just getting started, give yourself permission to not write well because nobody writes well when they're first starting. And then as we go farther along to continue to give ourselves permission when we're talking about imposter syndrome or or whatever, just keep giving ourselves permission to sit down and say, I can do this. I'm just going to sit down and write a few words. And if nothing comes out, that's okay. And then I guess advice for debut authors is, you know, you kind of have to steal yourself for using your marketing brain. You have to put a lot of energy and thought and time into trying to market your book. And it's not always clear what you should be doing or whether it makes any difference. Okay. So let's say you have an active Instagram presence as I do. It can be sort of enjoyable, but you're like, "Mm, I don't know if this makes any difference. I think there are things that you're going to have to do. And I think try to find the things that don't make you crazy that you sort of enjoy. You know, if something like Instagram makes you crazy, then don't do it or Twitter or, or whatever. It does take a lot for introverts to, you know, sort of pitch themselves to bookstores or podcasts or whatever. And so you do have to reserve some mental energy for that. Thank you so much, Sarah. Oh, thank you, Chris. It was so nice to talk to you. And it's so fun to talk about writing and all those little details. To learn more, visit sarahmacrawcrow.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.